I didn't realize at the time how impactful my journey was going to be in terms of my culture, my African-American brothers and sisters. I didn't know the impact that my playing soccer would have on my community and my culture. Welcome to the first installment of Men in Blazers American Legend series presented by Budweiser. It's a series that celebrates four incredible footballers as they don armour and prepare to defend the United States World Cup title in France. These conversations, they're more than about just the football. They focus on each player's distinctly unique personal narrative from their childhood to the present touching upon such weighty issues as race, the fight for gender equality, and the future of women's football itself. But before we speak to those four members of the current team, we're first going to look to the past and doff our caps to a true legend of the game, Brianna Scurry. When you think about great Americans, first American on the moon, Neil Armstrong. When you think about what Brianna's done, win a World Cup penalty shootout. She is the only American goalkeeper to have done that. So we jumped at the chance to catch up with the US women's national team hero last weekend in St. Louis before the team's 5-0 demolition of New Zealand. And we talked about her footballing journey, the greatest penalty shootout in American soccer history, and her legacy, both as a woman's footballing pioneer and an African-American. So here she is. Brianna Scurry. This is Rog. Oh, my guest today is a true American legend and bona fide sporting pioneer who emerged from the frozen tundra of Dayton, Minnesota, north <laughs> of the wall, where she learned to play soccer as the only girl on a boys team and the only African-American too. She went on to a 14-year career with your United States women's national team. Oh, did I mention 1999 World Cup glory? Olympic champion, the first African-American woman ever elected to the National Soccer Hall of Fame. One of the greatest goalkeepers in American soccer history, or better put, just in American history. Welcome to the pod, Brianna Scurry. <laughs> Raj, thanks for having me. That is the best introduction oh, in the history of my life. It's an amazing <laughs> life, and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. There's so much I love about your career as a player, chief amongst them, the chance of fate that led you to play soccer in the first place. If Hurricane Donna hadn't destroyed your family house in Galveston, Texas, and then an underground lake, yes, an underground lake... Hadn't swallowed the home in South Minneapolis where you'd moved for refuge. <laughs> Would your parents ever have moved 20 minutes outside the city to the Minneapolis suburbs? The life I lived might have been very different otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but when I heard this story, it's like Gwyneth Paltrow's sliding doors level random fluke of wonder. Because one day you were in school, you found a flyer announcing tryouts for a soccer club. Take me there to this moment when... Brianna Scurry first encounters soccer via the flyer. Were you like, what is this sport of which you speak? I actually was really excited about it. I saw the flyer and I thought to myself, hey, why not bring it home? 
I'd also played tackle football, so I went that ahead was your and first love. Tackle football was definitely my first love. My dad and I used to watch football games on Saturday and Sunday evenings and afternoons, and I decided to play, and they said okay. I played two seasons, ads, helmets, the whole nine yards. I didn't research you out, but I do happen to know you scored nine touchdowns as a wide receiver in a league for 11-year-old boys. Those <laughs> are Odell Beckham Jr. numbers. But what happened to the NFL years? <laughs> I played two seasons, and unfortunately I got to be a little bit too heavy for the lightweight division and then my mom said you know what that's the end of your career at that point oh mom <laughs> Mom, who's your childhood hearing roger starbuck one of the only great rogers <laughs> <laughs> in american history soccer though more readily available there was no girls team in dayton back then right. you joined the boys outfield were you were you immediately cast as a keeper how did it work early encounters with the game Brianna? back then with soccer in the united states in particular a lot of girls played on boys teams at that time and that was my first time playing and the coach thought it would be a better idea to keep me safe to put me in the goal as we know that's the most dangerous position <laughs> on the pitch and, and i really enjoyed it and i had a lot of fun with the boys team then <laughs> you had a successful a really successful collegiate career mm-hmm. at the university of massachusetts umass yes same time as Marcus Camby. Believe it or not, I saw the blooming of Marcus Camby at UMass. Your college coach described your style of goalkeeping thusly. He said, playing against Brianna is like rock climbing a slab of marble. There are no weaknesses in her game. For those that never saw you play, and I'm sorry if you didn't because it was a thing of wonder, (laughs) can you describe what Brianna Scurry was like on the field? I would say when I was in college, I was very good at shot stopping, very good at reaction saves. And then Jim Rudy, my college coach at UMass, he carved me into a better goalkeeper. And he helped me with the tactics and the techniques of goalkeeping and made me from a great athlete into an intelligent goalkeeper. You made your U.S. debut in 1994. You won an Olympic gold in 96. Well, you're letting less than a goal a game, three goals in a five-match march to glory. Back then in the early mid-90s, the U.S. women were so dominant mm-hmm. in that early period. Were the most strenuous shots you faced from your own team in practice? <laughs> Training was set up that way so that we'd go through that every day. And by the time we got to the games, the games were easier than training against each other. <sighs> that all changed, though, by 1999. The World mm-hmm. Cup here in the U.S. was loaded with threats and opportunities. Yes. The semi-final, to me, was your greatest game of the tournament. Superhuman save after superhuman save. You were essentially Tim Howard against Belgium before Tim Howard was bald and even knew what a tattoo sleeve was. (laughs) What do you remember most from that game? I knew that at some point during that tournament, the team would probably come out flat. And sure enough, the semi-final game after we played Germany in the quarterfinal was the game. And I knew I had to come up big. Otherwise, we weren't going to win this thing. I remember essentially spinning on my head. That game was probably more saves than my entire career up until that point. When I watch that game again, the thing that is fascinating about watching you, you are so placid in between saves. There's Mm -hmm. goalkeepers who are possibly the most furious athletes in sport after they make a save. They just bark at their (laughs) centre-backs. And then there's goalkeepers who are just like almost superhuman, like not phased. You are in that latter category. What what was your mental approach? Because you never shouted at your backline. Well, you never saw me shout at my backline. And usually after a save wasn't when I did it. Uh, I just knew that, you know what, we all have our role. And my job is to mop up the back. And I had to do that quite a bit in that Brazil game. And I wasn't thinking it was important 
at the time to yell at them right then because we still needed to defend the corner kick right after that. So that just wasn't a good time. I interviewed Tim Howard right after that Belgian game. Mm -hmm. He described what that felt like to make so many saves Mm -hmm. time and time again. He said, I looked at the stadium clock after about 20 minutes and then I looked at it again about four hours later and it was at 25 minutes. (laughs) And he couldn't work out the He said it felt like time had stopped. What did it feel like for you when you were in that zone? When you're having to make a lot of saves that way, it does drag on, drag on. And it's another wave after wave after wave. And it felt to me, too, like it was forever. But I knew that if I held the line, we would get our goal eventually. And we did. We got two of them. On to the final, where you face China. Trade war. Such a clinical (laughs) footballing team. 90,000 fans were packed into the Rose Bowl. Oh, what a day for football in this Mm. country. The temperature over 100 degrees, Mm -hmm. which somehow stifled the action. 0-0 at full time. 0-0 at the end of extra time. Mm -hmm. Take me there. What was your mindset like when that final whistle blew at the end of extra time and we all knew the game was going to penalties? I knew it was up to me. At that very moment, I knew that my number was going to be called upon to make my one save and that my five teammates would make their five kicks. And I went on over to the sidelines and I talked to Tony for a little bit, who was my coach you at the time. the great Tony D. Yes. And he said, Bri, this is your moment. He's like, you make one save, you're a hero, you make two, you're a legend. And I was like, OK, I got this. Let's do it. <sighs> so let's get this right. Going into it, your mindset was all of my teammates, they will be perfect. Yes. Based upon? <laughs> Based upon our training and my faith in them. I mean, I have to do my job, and I knew they would do theirs. Whoever he chose to take a kick, it didn't matter. And you knew, walking down to that long walk of doom towards the goal where fate awaits, <laughs> you knew one save is happening here. You were completely sure. I was absolutely certain, especially after we had gone through that overtime and Christine Lilly saved that border kick header off the line. At that moment, I knew we were going to win this thing. And since we were in penalty kicks, I'm like, okay, it's up to me. Oh, out of weakness cometh strength. You do have an ice-cold demeanor on the field. (laughs) I mean, that was your exterior as you walked down. Inside, is that what you're feeling? You can tell me. No one's listening. Butterflies. (laughs) Is there any fear? No, there's no fear. My mental game was one of my great strengths, and that's how I was able to do what I did under such pressure with everybody watching. Do you know in your career, do you know what your record was in penalty shootouts before this final? No, I have no idea. You'd only been involved in one shootout, and that you lost. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm glad I tied it up then. I love thinking about it. <laughs> you didn't know that. I didn't know that. Because <laughs> that, to me, is a record that doesn't inspire confidence. That's probably why you repressed it. What is the bigger challenge for a goalkeeper? Are you more mentally fatigued or physically exhausted? Or at that moment, is it all adrenaline? I think I was a little bit mentally fatigued, but I knew that because we were going on a penalty kicks, everybody was looking for me to do my job. And it actually inspired me to get ready and do it. This is the moment anticipation of that you just know that you're about to experience something amazing oh the jaws of history are wide open exactly yawning in front of you i did re-watch the penalty kicks recently and i'd encourage any of our listeners to but i've got to say the first two which both went in mm-hmm. you are so quick off the line mm-hmm. in those days you could be you could just yes. charge forward we trained that. We figured the referee's going to say something or they're not, and we're just going to go with it. And I figured, why not take the risk? It's worth it to me. And so I took it. Imagine a penalty shooter running towards the ball 
and imagine the goalkeeper <laughs> seemingly running towards the ball from mm-hmm. the other side. That's exactly what it looks like. Mm-hmm. To no avail for those first two. When the opposition scores, do you feel more pressure as the shootout goes on? Got to make a big play happen. Or is the pressure always constantly just on the kicker? I think it's always on the kicker. The pressure's always on them. I knew that eventually the one that I was supposed to save would come, and it did. The third kicker that came up, I knew it when she came up to the spot that this was the one. Li Ying. Yes. The third Chinese kicker takes the long walk up. The previous four kickers, all perfect. Game tied 2-2. We're entering the third round. Do you have a sense the kicker's going to score or miss by the way they approach the ball? I actually never watch. That one particular kicker is the only one I watched come up to the penalty spot because my brain said, look, and I looked at her. She's the only one I looked at. What, you heard a voice? Mm Mm-hmm, I did. This is almost biblical. (laughs) Like a burning bush said, look, and you looked. And what did you see? She's walking to the ball. Her shoulders are down. What did you see? I saw someone who didn't want to take a kick. She was chosen to take a kick that she didn't want to take. And I knew right then that this was the one, no matter where she kicked it. I never looked at a kicker after that, and I didn't look at a kicker before that but her. No matter where the ball was going, you knew in your heart. Mm -hmm. The save. You drop to the left, smother the ball. Then a fist pump and a high step in your moment of glory. Make us feel, in almost virtual reality, what feelings did you experience in that minute? Once I made that save, it was almost like an explosion inside of me, not only about the physical part of it, but all the emotion, all the training, all the time we've spent in that one moment just exploded. All of the moments you put in on those frozen, muddy fields in Dayton, (laughs) Minnesota, across (laughs) Minnesota, in college football, in training, everything had led up to that moment. That one moment. I like to tell people to imagine their most amazing experience in their lives times a thousand that's what it felt like that was my favorite moment of the world cup watching you Mm, thank you confidently Mm -hmm. potently dominate fulfill your everything your sacrifice your dreams your drive i loved how you did it that fist pump that high step but there is another moment it's a moment that's always played when we look at that world cup round five Mm -hmm. the game on the line brandy chastain steps up with a chance to clinch it for the United States. You were still standing by the goal, waiting in case you missed when you'd have to go to a sixth round. Can you take us there in that moment? Did you say anything to Brandy? Did you know which way she was going to go? What was going through your head as you stood there? So when I'm doing a penalty kick shootout, I don't actually ever watch my team take their kicks. So I had my back to her, (laughs) just like I had my back to all of my teammates when they took their kicks because... For me, I'm focusing on my responsibility, having complete faith that they're going to do what they need to do. Did you know which way they're going to go from practice? No idea. None? None. But you just knew, those are my women. Yep, they're going to make it, whoever it is. I had no idea who was going to kick until they started going back to the line because I didn't know they had kicked until after the crowd response, and then I would look. I love your confidence, <laughs> mostly because I have none. <laughs> but it was not misplaced. None missed. Brandy didn't miss. America saw glory and the sports bra iconic moment. Brandy Chastain sinking to her knees in victory. That was the moment yes. that captured the World Cup. Serious question. Do you feel you've got enough respect for your part in the shootout? Because in men's football, 
I mean, I was just with Bruce Grobelar this week, the Liverpool hero from 1984, the Champions League, European <laughs> Cup as it was then. That's known as his final, the spaghetti legs that he used to throw <laughs> off the shooters. Jersey Dudek in 2005, Istanbul. I mean, do you feel that you got enough respect? I do feel like I got enough respect. I know in my heart what my contribution was to the game, and I know that I set the stage by making that penalty kick save before that, and I also know that Christine Lilly set the stage saving that one off the line for me. So that's just how it goes, and I feel like without Brandy's dramatic exit after she made her kick, I don't think we have the impact with that game that we have today. Your own mum, the late Robbie Scurry, she talked to the media. She said you should have had more of the limelight and that you didn't get that, implying it's because you're African-American. Spoken like a true mum. <laughs> but going back to your high school days, Dayton, Minnesota, you were one of only half a dozen African-Americans in a student body, right. two and a half thousand. Sports Illustrated, in a feature on you, called the town as white as a goalpost. I read a very moving story that when your mother passed, you were going through her possessions. You said she kept every single team photo of the sport you played from 12 onwards. What was the first thing that you realized in that moment? Well, she had all the team pictures stacked up on top of each other. And obviously my heart was incredibly heavy going through her things as it was. And then I noticed that, yeah, I was the only African-American in every single picture, whether it was soccer, softball, basketball, track, football, whatever it was. I mean, that continued with the United States. You were an anomaly on that team. Mm -hmm. Sports Illustrated, quite clumsily, they wrote, Brianna is the only African-American starter on a team that plays in stadiums filled with more wasps than a mud dauber's nest. I have no idea what a mud dauber is. (laughs) But there was one other African-American on the team, the backup goalkeeper, Saskia Weber. Did you two talk about it together? Was it, for want of a better word, odd? that you were the only two African-Americans? It didn't seem that odd to me because of where I grew up. I was always the only one. And so for me, it was a comfort that I had being that way. So I don't know if Saskia had a discomfort in the fact that we were the only two, but it wasn't something we ever really discussed. We were just very honored and proud to be able to represent the USA in whatever way we could. Even as a player, though, even back then, you were cognizant of the pioneering role you played. Mm -hmm. You appeared in clinics in urban areas, on asphalt-covered playgrounds. You went to Chicago, to Detroit and New York City. Mm -hmm. You said, my role is to introduce choices to African-American girls, and the 1999 World Cup win would help that. Retrospectively, do you feel that it did help that, or is it still a problem that we're grappling with today? I think it definitely did help. Because being able to see someone play a sport and that someone looks like you, it gives you at least pause to consider the choice. And I think also with my advocacy and my working with foundations to try to bring soccer to the inner cities has over time helped the sport, but the particular issue still remains. The majority of the African-American players on the current team all grew up in the suburbs, just like I did. You've said soccer's simply still not a choice for young African-American girls. What is it that we have got to overcome in terms of the barriers? Is it politics? Is it infrastructure? Is it culture? Is it socioeconomics? What is the challenge as you see it and understand it? The two major challenges I see are economics and location. You have to have green fields and grass in order to have a pitch in the inner cities. And sometimes it's really difficult 
Also, young girls in inner city areas tend to not even be involved in any sport at all, let alone soccer. If you could change two things, what would they be? I would create an organization that the major purpose of it is to inspire young African-American girls to play the game of soccer. And number two would be to have every African-American player who's ever played men and women on the national teams or a really high level to be participants in that organization. America. (laughs) In 2017, you became the first African-American woman elected to the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. You know, that group that you want to come together, there has not been that many of them. You were the first to get that accolade. And one of many who believe you were belatedly selected. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, you were passed over for far too long. Thank you. What emotions did you experience? Was it relief? Was it joy? Was it both? So the first time I was up for it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then the second time I was up, I didn't make it again. And I was like starting to get a little aggravated. (laughs) So by the time the third time came around, I said, this definitely has to be the year because I was so very close the two times before that. Do you have a sense of what a pioneering moment it was for so many people? I really didn't have a full grasp of the impact of what I had done until I got notified that I was going to be in the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. There's an exhibit in the African American Museum called the Game Changers Exhibit, and I am the Title IX representative for that exhibit. Surrounded by Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Muhammad Ali, Athea Gibson, all these amazing African American athletes over the years who have essentially been pioneers and breakthrough agents, and I was very honored to even be asked to be in there. And I'm actually in that exhibit, but I'm also in two other places in the museum. So that's really when it hit home to me that I had made an impact on way bigger than I ever thought possible. So I took my two youngest kids to that museum this Mm -hmm. summer just to see that exhibit and Mm -hmm. stood there. And what I thought about was, what would you think as you looked around that exhibit, those names, an amazing exhibit. Some of the names are pulled out of history. Mm -hmm. Some of the names are the biggest popular culture names in American sports. What did you feel as you looked around there and you saw your name? I mean, if you consider who's in that museum, I'm on the third floor with all the athletes and the entertainers, but the two floors below are the journey from slavery and coming through that bondage and breaking through and civil rights. And I was able to have an opportunity because of all the millions of African-Americans who persevered through all of that. And so for me, I was just incredibly honored to be in the same building as Rosa Parks, Frederick Douglass. I felt the most calming and deep humility I've ever felt in my life because I didn't realize at the time how impactful my journey was going to be not only in soccer, I mean, I kind of knew in soccer, but in terms of my culture, my African-American brothers and sisters, I didn't know the impact that my playing soccer would have on my community and my culture until I got into that museum. And then the only downfall of that whole thing was my mom and dad weren't able to see. So what is the most important life lesson that you've learned from your career, which is enshrined there? your career which began with that flyer in school, (laughs) come play this game soccer, to the reality that you realized, I think, in that moment that you are a true, you're a double pioneer. 
Mm-hmm. You've been both a pioneer for women in team sport mm-hmm. and for African-Americans mm-hmm. within men's and women's sport. So what is the life lesson that you kind of glean from that journey? I think the life lesson I glean is when I was eight years old, I had an idea that I wanted to be an Olympian. And the lesson I've learned was don't ever doubt your dreams. They can be outlandish. They can be amazing. They can be so big, but they can happen. And so I'm grateful for the support that my mom and dad gave me in my outrageous wanting to be an Olympian at age eight, that they actually served and fostered and nurtured that seed. And for me to be able to say that I lived a life that impacted so many people in such a positive way is way beyond any expectation that I would have possibly had when I was just someone going through a life just trying to stop a soccer ball. You had the ability mm-hmm. to dare and not to doubt. Where do you locate that ability is coming from? Because I dream a lot, achieve none of them, to be quite <laughs> candid, but this is not about me. <laughs> Where do you get the ability not to doubt from? I feel like for me, it came from my upbringing. My parents always supported everything I ever did, and they always felt that whatever it was I said I could achieve, that I could do it. And I feel like because of that, it grew within me. And over time, I feel like it's gotten stronger. And I also talk about it so much in my speeches. And I try to connect with someone, whoever's listening to me speak, in the same way that my parents connected with me to try to foster that inspiration in someone else to believe that they can go and be whoever they want to be as well. To parents, to dreaming, to not doubting. Brianna, to sit with you is to sit with a true American hero. I raise my bud fam, blood fam, to you, to health, to happiness, and to American glory. Thank you, Raj. What a human wonder Brianna is. There's more faces sculpted into the side of Mount Rushmore than there are Americans who've achieved what she has. As we mentioned, this is just the first instalment of our Men in Blazers American Legends series presented by oh, Budweiser. In the lead up to the World Cup, we are going to start dropping individual pods on a regular basis and a ton of digital videos with, and this makes me so proud to read this list, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino. Crystal Dunn and the great Lindsay Horan. Stay tuned to our social channels for their release. I really hope you'll enjoy this as much as we enjoyed making it. It really was an honor. It was really an honor and a privilege to sit down and listen to these stories. So to the U.S. women's national team and all who sail in her, courage. <laughs>